0: So we thank you guys for coming up and joining the 2018 cbc men's retreat and uh, i've been at cbc since 1994 serve here as one of the elders and another one of our elders is bob deffenbaugh and bob served for many many years from 1976 before a lot of you guys were born uh, to 2012 he was our teaching elder that tom tom now serves in that role so Bob filled that role, filled the pulpit for us regularly for many, many years. So if you've been here a long time, you were uh, raised perhaps and grew up under Bob's teaching, or maybe you found us on Bible.org and you've heard Bob's recorded messages or written or some of the things that he's written there, and uh, you're going to get a chance to hear from him on uh, biblical manhood tonight and then tomorrow twice. It's a timely topic. There's a lot of discussion, as you guys know, right now on what it means to be a man uh, whether your gender identity is fixed by God or it's something you can refix if you decide you want to. So it's a real timely topic. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about it. There are a lot of lessons from the life of David, and I think that's going to be uh, a, a chief source of Bob's uh, material for tonight and tomorrow. Let's welcome Bob up here to the stage.
1: I think the notes are getting passed out here. Uh, As usual, you will discover that I have a a way of making uh, later modifications. And those are always indicated by different colored paper on my uh, desk, at least. And the first thing I have to do is explain why what Carrie said is what I said, uh, but it's not what I say anymore. And uh, it reminds me of a slide that I found of our family years ago when I was uh, just a youngster and I had my, uh, my two sisters and younger brother, and we went to Montana and Glacier National Park, and we went to this camping site that was just beautiful, the blue sky, and I was the photographer for the family. And, and we found this camping spot, and we borrowed a tent from my aunt. We had never camped before. And and so there was this nice kind of uh, spot where the, it was kind of a little bit of a hole, but it looked so cozy and comfy that we pitched the tent there. And, and then we took a picture uh, of everybody sitting around the picnic table, big smiles, blue sky. It was just awesome. The only problem was the lull before the storm. Nobody had told us about mountain storms. And so we pitch our tent, we get in our sleeping bags, and the lightning, the thunder, and the rain started to come. And, and of course, being in the hole, we had now two to three inches of rain in the tent. Uh, sleeping bags are soaked my brother was singing, Jesus Loves Me, at the top of his lungs. And we just wad the whole thing up, stick it in the trunk, and just drive off to a motel. That was our first and almost last camping trip. It started so well. That's kind of the way this lesson went. I thought to myself, you know, we'll just pick somebody like David, and we'll look at their life, and we'll talk about their leadership and, and you know how you can imitate that. Uh, There's only a few problems with that. When I started looking in the Old Testament, I discovered not only David, but virtually every Old Testament man that was there was no model of fatherhood and no model of uh, being a husband. For example, if you see in your notes, here's uh, Abraham saying to his wife, Genesis 12, just tell him you're my sister. The inference being, go ahead, become a part of the harem, uh, sleep with them, but just don't let them hurt me. That was that was the essence. Genesis 12 does it again in Genesis chapter 20 with Abimelech and Abimelech starts to chew him out. And you remember, Abraham says, oh, this is our foreign policy. We do this everywhere we go. Sarah and I agreed that she would always say she was my sister so that she would always, always be eligible and my skin would be saved. What a hero. What a hero, wouldn't you say? And the last time with Abimelech was shortly before she was to get pregnant with the promised heir. So Abraham got scratched off my list for husband of the year. Then there was Isaac, Genesis chapter 26. What happens? same thing. Isaac passes his wife off as his sister to save his skin, the great defender of the weak. Jacob, I put mandrakes there, you remember? Jacob had all kinds of wife problems. He loved Rachel rather than Leah, and I put mandrakes in there because Leah actually had to hire her herself a time to be with her husband because he really preferred Rachel uh, to her. Jacob was not much of a prize either. But as I told somebody, I am going to pay. I'll pay big time when I get to heaven to watch the instant replay of Jacob's face when the light from the tent shines on his bride's face and he founds, finds out it was not Rachel. Don't, don't you just love that, that particular scene? Seven years he waits. Man, oh man, this boy. At least he should have asked for ID. But but no, sir, he's right on in there, and by the time it's over, he is married. David. Well, you wouldn't want to call him the ideal husband either, would you? Certainly, you wouldn't want to ask Uriah how he felt about that, or even Bathsheba. So, there are just no heroes. Husband-wise, when you look all the way through the Old Testament, when you look into the New Testament, you really don't find anybody who is pictured as, here's the hero that you should be like. Then there's the father of the year. Here's Lot. Oh, please, to the people of Sodom, oh, please, don't hurt these perfect strangers. Take my two virgin daughters and do with them what you want. Doesn't that just blow your mind? And, and then you remember his two virgin daughters aren't virgins anymore because they're uh, they're going to carry on the family name through their father. Well, that's not so good either. Moses, uh, remember he was called a, a man of blood because in uh, chapter 4, he, he neglected to circumcise his son and the Lord was just about to kill him. For that his wife had to take the lead to spare him. But the one I guess I smile at is the one in Exodus 18 2 through 5. Do you remember that's the, the occasion where Jethro is going to come along and he's going to watch and see how Moses is spending all his time? And, and, uh, and then he says to him, Man, you, you need to delegate, you need to get some people here and kind of spread the load out. What I smile at is the way that text starts it says that Jethro brought his wife and his children whom he had left behind. So here's here's Abraham uh, uh, here's Moses who's saying, "Well, it's going to be a little risky, pop. Would you take care of my wife and kids?" But he doesn't come back for them. And so Jethro says, "Yeah, I'm going to come and visit, but by the way, this is your wife, these are your kids, and in effect, take care of them." Father of the year. Eli, Samuel had sons that were unruly, undisciplined, shameful. And then David uh, isn't father of the year either. You remember when the incident comes up with Amnon and Tamar. Amnon asks uh, to have Tamar come and bring him a meal. And you're saying to yourself, what kind of a father can't, say to himself, this doesn't smell right. The sniff test just isn't working here. And in effect, he sets his own daughter up for what Amnon's going to do. And then when she is uh, raped and rejected, you remember Absalom, her brother, uh, decides he's going to take action and he kills Amnon and then he flees. And 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 David sort of just won't deal with the relationship, and ultimately Absalom rebels against his father and tries to take the kingdom. All that is to say, there are no fathers of the year, there are no husbands of the year in the Old Testament. Why is that true? I think you have to say, there are some good reasons. I'm really grateful to a guy named Jared Wilson, if you haven't read any of his stuff, He's written some really good stuff, but I'm thinking about his book called Prodigal Church. Jared Wilson's a guy who came out of the seeker-friendly, mega-church kind of environment. He's not an angry man. He's simply saying, we ought to be thinking about the way in which we're doing church and asking ourselves, is this really squaring with the gospel that we preach? And so he says, one of the problems that you have is you have to get people there, you have to, I hate to use the word bait, but, but there has to be something to attract the people to come. Either it's a great, you know, musical group, there's some stage production, something grand has to happen to get those people who are seekers into the church doors. And so one of the things that you do is you offer them something like the seven steps to a jazzy marriage. And and, and you, you go through those steps, and the inference is, if you do this, and do this, and do this, and this, and this, you'll have this, a happy marriage. What's wrong with that? It's legalism. What if you said to somebody, now, if you did this, you were circumcised, you kept the law, Try to be a good neighbor and whatever, and then you can go to heaven. It's, you can't do that. The gospel is the gospel of grace. There's nothing you can do. You can only receive it. And yet you're bringing people in and you're saying to them, if you do this, this and this, God gives you this. As though somehow God has changed the rules. And what Paul is saying in the book of Galatians is that doesn't work with salvation and it doesn't work with sanctification. It's not do this, get that. Because Christ has done it all. Talk to Todd this week. Todd, uh, some of you may not know him, some definitely will. Todd's a remarkable guy. He's been in Indonesia for good grief. I've forgotten how many years now they were working to reach the north coast of Java. And when I left there, oh, 12, 13 years ago, there were 200 little groups of people who were studying the Scriptures, some of whom were believers, some were not, but sort of were on their way. 200 groups. Today, there's over 2,000 groups. And And Todd said to me, Bob, I'm being asked to go all over the world to speak at missions conferences and to uh, tell them how I did it. And he said, I don't know, the foggiest idea. I don't. I don't know how I, did. I didn't, in, in a sense, he's saying, I didn't do it. Now, when you look at the book of Acts, I was, I was thinking about that because Todd, Said that he can identify with with the, the apostles in the book of Acts because you remember you're, you're all of a sudden Jesus gets crucified and, and a few days pass by and all of a sudden poof five thousand people come to faith right and you're saying what what do I do with this group of people they didn't strategize and start an evangelistic association to get them saved they just got saved. And now the church has to catch up and say, what are we going to do with these new believers to help them grow in their faith? The one I like better is what I call the second Pentecost. You know where that is? Acts chapter 10. Peter's the guy, again, Peter was the key guy in first Pentecost in in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 10, remember, is where Peter gets this vision. Cornelius has got his people, Gentile. He's sending his people to ask Peter to come and tell them about Jesus. And, and, and he has this vision of this uh, this uh, sheep being lowered from heaven and all these animals and creatures, some clean, some unclean, by Jewish definition. And God says, kill and eat. He says, no way, God, not me. No way. Three times. Finally, Peter gets the message Cornelius's uh, people come and he goes to Cornelius' house and he starts to, to share the gospel with them. He doesn't get to the invitation. The organ isn't playing 15 stanzas of Just As I Am. He hasn't even gotten there and the Holy Spirit comes down. And, and, and so Peter baptizes them. He goes back to Jerusalem and his fellow Christian leaders... Say to him, Peter, what do you think you're doing taking the gospel to Gentiles? And Peter says, it wasn't my fault. I didn't do anything. I was just telling about Jesus and the Spirit came down on them and baptized, just like Pentecost. It wasn't my fault. What could I do? I had to baptize them. Now, today, we would have guys writing books. And they would say, here's the way to have revival in your church. You just do this like I did, and you do this like I did, and that's what you get. And and that's really contrary to the gospel, and it's contrary to the work of God. When you read the book of Acts, you don't see some magic bullet that says, this is exactly the way you do it. You see God at work in a way you wouldn't have believed. And he gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. You go to a Christian bookstore today, I would hate to guess the percentage of books that are how-to books. Now, where am I going with that? The reason why you don't have model fathers and model husbands is because we would make it into a how-to. We'd say, well, how did Abraham do it? And then we'd create this formula and we'd say, well, if you did this and this and this, you'd get this. That is not the way God works. That's what I'm trying to say. It's not a how-to world. It's a world in which God is at work and we are to be with him in that. But it is not how-to. If we only had a system, what would we do with that? We would trust in the system, would we not? We would feel confident. Oh, I've got this plan. I've got this system, and and because of that, I'm confident in the system, and I'm confident in me. And frankly, God doesn't need to be a big piece of that equation. And guys are going to conferences all the time today. Pastors are going to conferences today, getting how-to stuff. Here's how you do. Here's how I made a big successful church, and if you do it like I did it. You can have a big, successful church, too. I don't think God is giving us a model to imitate. So the bottom line is this. There is no model person that we imitate. There is no model system. And here's what we're left with. The Old Testament fathers and husbands were miserable failures. Were they not? Who would you say was a grand success in in the scheme of fatherhood husbandry? (laughs) I can't name anybody. But think about the purpose of the Old Testament. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, the Old Testament law was given not to give us a set of dues that we could do and then get God's results. Their standards were set forth so we would realize how far short of God's standards and ideals we were, that we would realize we're helpless. And it turns us to Christ. That's what the law was to do. It was to turn us to Christ. And so, who is the model father? God is. God is the model father. And we have to look to him. Who is the model husband? I think you can say from a New Testament sense, Jesus is the model husband. Is he not? That's why you've got Ephesians chapter 5. The husband is to deal with his wife like Christ dealt with the church. That's the model. So, we see our inadequacy. We see only God is adequate. Only God fulfills the ideal. Our trust and our hope must be in him. So, here's where I'm going. How do you get there? How do you get there? And now I'm going to recommend another book or or actually series that uh, Tim Keller did called gospel identity it really helped me he talks about how people in various cultures identify who they are they see their identity some cultures look outside the caste system parental approval, some kind of system in in our schools, you know, what other kids think, whatever it is. This outside tells me, here's who I am. Here's what I am. Here's how I stand. And he says, today there is this new model in the West that basically says, I don't look outside, I look within. I look to myself. I look to my own set of definitions. And that's where I find out who I am. That leads me to take a moment to say, how important is this issue of gender? It is absolutely critical. Last January, not this January of this year, January of the year before, National Geographic came out with a magazine, the whole issue devoted to gender. And they had this chart, and there were 30-some different gender identifications, And I'm reading, I'm I'm in the doctor's office, and I'm reading this thing, and I can't believe my eyes, and I I say, I don't even know what those words mean. And and they're they're defining that, but, you know, it used to be gender was binary. You're a one or a zero, you're male or female, you know, it's just that easy. All you got to do is look at the hardware, and you're there. Now, you've got another story, and people are defining themselves in all kinds of ways. If you think National Geographic is going along, Facebook now has 50 gender categories. 50 categories. Can you imagine that? 50 bathrooms uh, and, and growing. Because people have to have their this. I think part of the reason is people are trying to identify themselves in a way that makes them unique and makes them special. And so male or female just doesn't cut it. So you've got to be this special blend of something in between. And, and my guess is... We'll be seeing more categories. I think if the home, the Christian home, and the church does not get gender right, our society is in deep, deep trouble. If our children cannot see what it means to be a man and a woman as a Christian, we're in a lot of trouble. We're in a lot of trouble. So this whole business of identity, I think, is critical. And what I'm saying is this. I think that that the key, one of the critical keys, is to see our identity in Christ. And that is who we become. So if Christ is, in a sense, the ultimate man, then that's that's how we define manhood, better than we could in in any other way. Now, I I want to just give you a couple of... Pieces of this identity thing. And I want to distinguish between identity and role. And I want to go first of all to Galatians chapter 3. You remember where Paul says in Galatians 3.28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you look at that whole account, what he's saying is this. When you say to a slave, who are you? He says, I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. Who I am is Christ. For me to live, Paul says, is Christ. That's who I am. A woman, who are you? Christ. That's who I am. That's my identity. Jew, Gentile. See, the Jewish problem was their identity was in their role. Their identity was in their race, and therefore they couldn't tolerate bringing Gentiles in on an equal par. They didn't understand that when Christ came, as Paul says in Galatians 3, when Christ came, he was the seed through whom the Abrahamic covenant would be fulfilled. And consequently, anybody who is in Christ gets all of those blessings. And the Jewish people are saying, no, no, those are my blessings. Don't understand the Abrahamic covenant through Abraham, who I bless. All of the nations will be blessed. They don't get it. When you look at Jesus in John chapter 5, remember Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath. He's brought before the the, the religious authorities. And they basically say, what do you think you're doing? What is Jesus' answer in John chapter 5? My identity is my father. I am my father's son. I watch what my father does. I do what my father does. My business is the father's business. I am so tied to my father. My identity is so wrapped up in him. That's who I am. That's why I do what God does. I'm at work because my father's at work. Now, obviously, what the Jewish authorities read in that was, he's calling himself God. And he was. But it's his identity When you got to John chapter 17, when Tom was there, the thought occurred to me. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he's telling the Father, this is who I am. I am yours. I am fulfilling your will. I am seeking your glory. His identity was with the Father. And our identity is with Christ. And that's how we can be one with him. Baptism. What is baptism about? It's about our identification with Christ, isn't it? Isn't that what Paul says when, you're, when the Spirit joins you to the work of Christ and you die with Him to sin and you are raised to newness of life? My identity is Christ. I have a new identity. And that's why the New Testament says, if you have been joined with Christ, you can't live the old way anymore. You have to live the new way. You can't live in sin. You have to live to life. Communion. I think communion is a regular way. By the way, we take the elements, we make them a part of our body. It's a saying, I am identified with Christ and his work at Calvary. Once for all done at baptism, done consistently, I think, at communion. I've said this before, but when you look at the book of Acts, and you see Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 2 as well, Isn't it interesting that this brand new bunch of baby Christians, what's one of the first things that you see that characterizes those Christians? They are baptized and what do they do? They give. That's what I'm getting to. They give. So you got chapter 4. Barnabas has his property. He he distributes it about. In fact, there was so much of that taking place that Ananias and Sapphira felt almost you know, peer pressure to do something they didn't want to do. Why did they give? Did they give because there were a whole lot of sermons on stewardship? No, they gave because they had become identified with God, who is the giver, the ultimate giver. And, and Peter says that's what Christianity is all about. It's about us taking on the divine nature. We become so identified with him, we begin to act like him. <laughs> when we had our first child, uh, Timmy, I remember my dad and, and I sitting uh, standing there at the nursery window and there was kind of a ledge. And I don't know why. I don't think I do it that much anymore. But we both have our finger on our nose like this. My dad and I. And, and I swore Timmy in that crib was going to put his finger out right alongside his nose. It's just, we were one. And I find myself, even today... Doing things and saying things and thinking things. And then I say to myself, that's my dad. That's my dad. That's the way it ought to be with us. We ought to be so intimately intertwined with who he is. That his nature and his character begins to work itself out in us. Our identity. I didn't mention, by the way, here's another one. We had Galatians 3.28. Look at First Peter 3.7. It says to husbands, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Is that not saying that while she has a different role, woman, that she is a weaker person, that her identity is still an heir of God in Christ? And in that sense, she's no different than we are. We are the same in our identity. And that places, I think, this whole role thing in perspective. Who we really are, if we're believers, is Christ. And we are equal, no matter whether we're rich, poor, whatever we are, we're equal. We have different roles, and that's why Paul can tell slaves to behave in a certain way, masters to behave in a certain way, but their identity is the same. It's Christ, if they are believers. Look at this one in James chapter 1. Verses 9 and 10. I think he's saying the same thing. He says, but let the brother in humble circumstances glory in his high position. I think what he's saying is let the brother who's poor. Exult in the fact that his identity. Is high, is it not in Christ? Couldn't be better. And then he says, let the rich man glory in his humiliation. The rich man may in his role be rich, But in reality, when he stands before God, he's humbled. So your identity and your role are distinct. And that's what allows Paul to say, I think, in 1 Corinthians 7, if you're a slave, you can be free, that's fine. But don't worry about changing your role, because you can't change your identity. And so what I'm saying to you is, I believe that the way in which we lead is a reflection and an outworking of our identity with God and with Christ, and we reflect His leadership because of our identification with Him. I got a little caveat in there for you, and that's uh, First Thessalonians. Unless we get too locked into this role thing, male, female, just remember Paul likens himself in First Thessalonians chapter two, verse seven. He says, I'm like a nursing mother. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 11, I'm like a father. I wonder if one of the things that God is doing by giving us wives who have a different disposition and whatever, is what he's saying is, here's an aspect of the gentleness of God that we need to work out on our wives. Maybe that that model it for us and maybe we catch on a little better that way. Seems to me that may be the case. All right. I'm trying to lay a foundation for where we're going to go tomorrow. But let me say this. Our basic role, I think, as men is to lead. Would you agree? That's the way it was done in the garden. That's the way it's always been. I'm not saying, by the way, we've done a great job. I'm simply saying when God created man, he created him to lead. He created Eve, he created woman to support, to help, but man was to lead. The fall occurred because Adam did not lead, he followed. I think that's crystal crystal clear. But our job is to lead, the question is, how do we do it? And what I'm trying to set forth for you is this. I think the biblical model for leadership can be summed up in one word, shepherding. I think biblical leadership is shepherding. If I can do nothing else than convince you to think about the role God has for you as a leader as shepherding, I think that's a game changer. And I want to show you some examples because when you look through leadership in the uh, in the in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you'll see the word shepherd is used synonymously with lead or rule. So, for example, uh, Cyrus, here's a foreign king, and God calls him my shepherd. He uses Cyrus to lead and to accomplish God's purposes. Uh, you see that of, of David uh, in a number of instances. You see that of national leaders, tribal leaders uh, as well. Here's the one I want you to think about. The word is not used, but it's Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. Take a look at this. What typically happens when people come to power is they use their power to serve themselves. Would you agree? When you look, whether it's North Korea, you know, Russia, wherever it is, people abuse their power in order to gain something for themselves. And Nebuchadnezzar was no exception. So Nebuchadnezzar is given this message that his kingdom is going to be taken away. For a time. And then he says this. Verse 27. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. You see what he's saying? Use your power to serve the weak. Don't use your power to abuse the weak and make yourself rich off of them. Use your power to serve the weak. I think what he's saying, in effect, is consistent with the rest of Scripture. I think what he's saying is, use your, sh- uh, your power to shepherd the people. And when he refused to do that, God had him down on grass, right? He got his attention until he came to see where he stood in the pecking order of God, which is pretty low. Humility. When you uh, when you think about that, that has all kinds of implications in terms of uh, the New Testament and what it says about those and their lifestyle. I want to pick on just one for one second. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, starting with verse 17, is basically saying, once you have come to know Christ, you have come to a game changer. Your thinking needs to change. Your behavior needs to change. You have a 180 degree revision in your course, so to speak. And he says, as an example, let him who stole steal no more, but let him work with his own hands that he may give to those in need. Sometimes I make the mistake of saying I've spent a lot of time in prison, which I have, but I spent it on the other side of the bars, but... But one of the things that I've seen, it's it's weird, but it's true, that there is within the system this sense that if I'm big and strong and this 80-year-old lady on Social Security is weak, her check is my check. All I have to do is go collect it. That is the opposite. That is the opposite of shepherding. Shepherding says, I am to use my strength in order to serve those who are weak. And that's why I say shepherding, when, when you take that concept and you play it out, as I think you can, in every one of our lives, wherever we are in our life, I think there is a shepherding role to be played. And that shepherding role is using whatever strength and power we have to serve and minister to the weak. That's shepherding. And when that happens, you won't be seeing the abuses of power that are so typical in our world and our society today. Okay, so you see the word shepherding used uh, for good leaders in Jeremiah uh, chapter 3, Ezekiel chapter 34, you see it used of bad leaders and they're bad shepherds. They don't care for the sheep. They don't look after the wounded and the hurting. They don't bind up their wounds. And in fact, they prey upon the sheep and they eat the sheep rather than care for them. When the sheep run off, they don't care. The good shepherd cares for the sheep. He'll even give up his life to spare the sheep. And when they wander off, he goes and brings them back to the fold. A world of difference played out between good shepherds and bad shepherds. And you remember, it is our Lord Jesus who is the ultimate good shepherd. Psalm 23 may not be speaking only of our Lord Jesus. It may well be speaking of God the Father as he shepherds us gently, lovingly. When we were, Jeanette and I and my folks were in uh, Scotland and we uh, stayed at a bed and breakfast on a sheep farm. And it was just interesting to see the, 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 the affection that the, that the shepherd had. For the flock, they care for it. In fact, there was one that was right there by the door in a little pen, and we said to the guy, what's this sheep doing here? He says, that's a pet lamb, pet lamb. That was his pet. They loved those sheep. That is the way in which I think we need to view leadership no matter what form it takes in our lives or others. One last point and place to go that is not in your notes. John chapter 21. I think the scriptures tell us what to do in terms of shepherding. They don't tell us how in the sense that they tell us every little facet in some to-do list, but they do tell us why. John chapter 21 is, I think, an epilogue. In a sense, the gospel of John ends at verse 30 and 31 of chapter 20. Many other things, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Sort of closes it out, doesn't it? I think chapter 21 is the transition between the Gospels and Acts and the Epistles, the New Testament church. And so now, here's what you see. The first part of chapter 21 is that story, remember, where Peter says, and, and, and remember, Jesus wasn't with the disciples 24 hours a day. He came and he went, and the, the disciples were kind of sitting around, <laughs> twiddling their thumbs, trying to figure out, what do we do next, right? And, and so Peter says, I'm going fishing. And, and so off they go, you remember, and they see someone on the shore and he says, uh, cast your nets to the other side. This, by the way, is a throwback, is it not? I know that's a play on words, but is it not a throwback to Luke chapter 5? Luke chapter 5, Jesus is, is teaching, using the boat as his kind of platform and it's just far enough from the crowd and, and they, they can't get to him, but he can speak to them. And then he tells the disciples who have been out all night, that's when they do their fishing, and he tells them to go out a bit and cast out their nets. This was the time you dried your nets. And and Peter, you know, he I think he's saying to himself, hey, look, Jesus, fishing is my business. That's what I do. You want to know how to catch fish? Ask me. Please don't tell me how to do it. And please don't tell me to do it the opposite way that it's been working for me for years. That goes out, you remember, <laughs> and the boat nearly sinks and whatever. That was the point at which the disciples left their boats and followed Jesus. I think the lesson was this. I will abundantly provide when you follow me. Fishing was their livelihood. What he's saying is, trust me, I can provide for all of your needs when you follow me. And they do. Now you have Jesus risen from the dead and and the disciples are trying to figure out what to do and I, for all I can tell Peter's basically saying I'm going back to work you know what else do I do and so uh, it happens again in a sense a redo of Luke 5 and you see that where uh, the great catch of fish is given they bring the fish in <laughs> Peter jumps in the lake and you know all that stuff but anyway God is once again saying, just before he sends them out to care for the church, which is going to be born at Pentecost, he lets them know again, I will abundantly provide for all of your needs. If you follow me, you do what I've given you to do, I'll take care of you. That's what I see, abundance. Front end of discipleship, now at the beginning of the church, he's making his message loud and clear. Second half of John 21. And it seems to me, by the way, John chapter 21 is mainly about Peter. Wouldn't you agree? Peter's the guy that's out and going fishing. The rest of the guys, okay, we're with you, Peter. It's really heavily on Peter because Peter is going to be a key leader in the church as you get to the book of Acts. So Jesus, in verse 15, says to him after breakfast, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these no, There's all kinds of theological stuff out there about what these is. In my opinion, it doesn't matter. Whether it's the fish, fine. I, 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 somehow I, I have a little trouble with that. Do you love me more than fish? Mm. Uh, and, and, and I, but it may well be because Peter has said, in effect, if everybody else leaves you and betrays you, I can be trusted on. Right? And obviously that wasn't true. So Jesus is saying, do you, do you love me more than these? Peter says, well, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. And He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time. I think three is a number that's sticking in Peter's mind, probably because of his denials. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, tend my sheep. I think we do all kinds of things to tell people how to tend sheep. And I'm not saying there aren't things that we can learn. But isn't Jesus saying here what really matters is, do you love me? People who love Jesus. People who find their identity in the great shepherd are going to act like shepherds. Are they not? That's the natural outflow. And the particulars of that, I think God will work out in his own way. But the real question is, do we love him? Do we love him? And my sheep, what we're going to pick up on tomorrow, my sheep is obviously a bigger category of people. It means wives. It means children. It means people in the church. It means believers who need to be tended and cared for. If we love Jesus, then we will be like Jesus and we will do what Jesus gave himself to do, the great shepherd of the flock. Do we love him? That's the question. Okay, let me give you a chance to ask questions or make comments. Not throw tomatoes. Anybody? I don't want to put you on the spot, but I don't want to cut you off either. Yes. I think it really does. And and it's interesting too that what David uh, sins w- with respect to Bathsheba and Uriah, he is rebuked in shepherd terms. You know, here's a little lamb. Here's a pet lamb. You have many sheep. You know, here's this one and you took it. Uh, for, for, a, for a shepherd at heart, that is a low blow. That, that is a painful rebuke. Anybody else? All right. Yes, Jim. Yes, I think uh, one of the texts that I go to in my mind is uh, Matthew chapter 8, and, and that's the centurion. And, and here's, here's the centurion asking God to come, heal his servant, And and, and in effect, Jesus is saying, okay, let's go. And and the centurion is saying, let's see, I'm Gentile, he's Jewish, he's going to have to come to my house. And and then he starts thinking in this authority terms, and he says, well, wait, wait, now, I'm a man under authority, not of authority. I'm a man under authority, and I say to a guy, come, and he comes. Say to him, go, and he goes. And in a sense, the greater the authority, the greater the distance, you know. I have to say this, as a parent, and it's been a while, but as a parent, your authority is directly proportional to your distance, right? And in fact, we, in our generation, we, we talk about the days when there were no seatbelts and where you're driving down the highway and the kids are all fighting and you go whack, 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 you know, just, just clear the deck back there. If you're, if you're that close, your authority counts. But if that kid knows you can't reach him, your authority begins to dwindle proportionately to your distance. What this guy is saying is, I, I understand. I can give orders, and they'll be carried out at the distance. I recognize you are under authority. And I recognize you don't have to go to my house. You can do this long distance. Just say the word. And, and obviously, Jesus marvels at that. But I, But I do think what we're saying is, anybody who's a shepherd knows that he's under authority. And nobody says that more than Jesus. He says it over and over again. I'm not here to do my own will. I'm here to do the will of my Father. And, and so the shepherd is a leader, but he's a leader who's following the ultimate leader. And that's why Peter calls him the great shepherd. I'm trying to, Peter and Hebrews use two terms, but the great shepherd of the flock. The, the chief shepherd is Peter's terms. But but the bottom line is, he, he's saying to elders, you're shepherds, he's the shepherd. And so we always lead uh, following him. I think that's, and that's why we reflect him. So the God who is the great shepherd is the one who has chosen to, to save men, to make a church of people who reflect him by shepherding. Mm-hmm. As I see it. Robert? Yes. I agree. And, and I think, you know, the sad part is that the gender cult wants to, to, to talk about God as she. And, and that's not the way it is. But the, but the point is, there are elements of God's nature that sometimes is more manifest in the female gender than the male gender. But 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 that's that's because God is gracious and tender and kind and shepherd. Well, I think I would say he is a godlike like husband, uh, is he not? In the sense that there's a sense in which God divorces Israel. And, and in fact, as I as I understand it, I could be off track. But as I understand it, when God says you are not my people, in that that whole equation. I think that he really does divorce his people and they're not, not my people. And when Paul picks that term up, what he says is, God takes those who are not his people and makes them his people. Now, in the context of Hosea, that's dispossessed Jews who are going to be brought back into the fold. But what Paul says is, if, in fact, God takes those who are not his people and makes them his people then that worked for Gentiles, too. And and so, yeah, I remember well in, in that Hosea text, uh Piper had a, a message on that, and he said, I, you will call me Ishi, my husband, uh, 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 an affectionate Valentine's Day <laughs> expression, right? Not my Baali. Baal means master. And, and what he's saying is, when I bring this wayward one, back to me. She's not going to be groveling her way back behind somewhere in, in shame and, and whatever. It's saying, she's going to be beside me. She is going to be my intimate lover and, and not some second-class citizen. And, and <laughs> that particular message, i got to tell you, Piper is, is looking out at his audience and he's saying... I fear that some of you, your relationship is more a Baali relationship than an Ishi relationship. And then he prays. He says, dear Lord, I'm looking out there. Some of those folks aren't very happy. <laughs> and, and he prays for them. But I think that's, that Jose is a beautiful, beautiful picture of a gracious God who woos back his wavered bride. Yes, sir. So, Jimmy. Yes, yes. I think, uh, A, we're threatened. I, I think that's true. Many, many believers are threatened. Uh, many believers are angry, uh, and hostile and and all I can say, trust me i whatever whatever uh bad vibes anybody else has i i can have my fair share but when you read 1st corinthians 6 and and you see you know there's a city where there's just rampant immorality of all kinds and paul says some of you were that way that that's where you were that was your life that was what you were and and Christ has made you new. And so when when Paul says in in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You know, then you basically have to say when people come to faith that I can't deal with them as the old anymore. I've got to deal with them as the new. Good, Tom. Yes. And and add just adding one other piece to that without any disagreement at all we're all uptight about gender confusion out there. Um, why is it that the church somehow is confused about what God has said about the role of men and women in the church? And and somehow there's this view in the church, I can do anything a man can do. Isn't that what's being said by women, Christians? Uh, so the gender confusion is inside our doors as well as outside. Okay. Time's up. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that you are the great shepherd and that our Lord Jesus is the chief shepherd, chief shepherd and that he gave his life for the sheep. He has redeemed us. And now you've given us the privilege of being shepherds. We pray that we as men would lead in a shepherdly way, gently, caringly, sacrificially, and that that would reflect who you are. Be with us throughout this retreat, we ask. Change us to be more like the shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen.